0: Son of man comes will he find faith on earth That's a haunting question by the church body, Um, that would be Alex Bleem, Chuck Edwards, Bob Jones, and Mike Jones. Uh, You'll have an opportunity to get to know these guys better. If you don't know them already, next Sunday night on the evening of the 22nd, uh, they will be each giving their testimony. And then on the morning service of the 29th, we'll take the formalized vote and install them as deacons. Uh, Let me also tell you that uh, Brother Henry Foster has agreed to serve as a deacon emeritus. Uh, And uh, so we're very uh, excited about that and the mature leadership that he brings to us uh, in that regard. So uh, we're looking at Romans 8, and we'll start reading at verse 31. You know, I've been telling you in our study through Romans that Paul has an invisible friend. You remember this? Paul has an invisible friend. And this week, um, I sort of had this horrible thought that the people of my church were going around saying things like, Pastor says Paul has an invisible friend. <laughs> well, look, the, the, the reason I bring that up, Paul has an invisible friend, is that as he writes the book of Romans, he's constantly sort of anticipating uh, the uh, reaction or the response or the challenges that might be given to what he has to say. For example, you remember that he talked about how we're saved by grace, justified. By faith, therefore, we have peace with God. And you can just hear the invisible friend saying, well, that means we can just sin all we want. And Paul writes that down. He says, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, well, actually, no. And he writes chapter 6 to say, no, we don't sin um, because we live in the resurrection power. We have a newness of life because of Christ. And so throughout the letter, he he sort of is responding to anticipated uh, objections or observations or responses that might come. Uh, I've labeled that my uh, uh, Paul's invisible friend. Uh, If you were studying this in seminary, you would label that a diatribe. Now, in English today, a diatribe is sort of like a bad word. It means you're haranguing somebody and all that. But in Greek rhetoric, a diatribe is simply anticipating what someone will say, quoting what they what they're going to say, and then responding to it, which Paul does. So it's it's, it's a Greek rhetorical advice, uh, a, a device. But aren't you glad I said invisible friend instead? I mean, it's just been a lot more fun. Well, Paul's invisible friend right now has a problem. Uh, as you recall, this invisible friend is very much invested in the Jewish tradition. He's very much invested in, in being a Jew. In fact, uh, as far as he can tell, the way you come into a relationship with God is through Judaism. Uh, being born a Jew that makes it certain. Follow the rules. Uh, follow the tradition. Obey the laws. Offer the sacrifices, and that's how you know you have a, this right relationship with God. It's because you're part of the Jewish nation. And even at that, if you know, fine. If you want to be a Christian, but you know, you first you need to be a Jew first because that's how God works. He just works with the Jews and. Paul comes along and says, well, you know, in point of fact, uh, being Jewish is no guarantee of anything. Uh, God has never worked on the basis of race. He's always operated on the basis of faith and grace. And uh, that's why he brought up Abraham, the, uh, the father, if you will, of, Ju- of the Jewish nation. And uh, said, you know, it was Abraham, and he was accepted on the basis of his faith in God. Um, that not his works or anything like that. It was It is trusting in the promises of God. Um, so throughout Romans, uh, Paul has been talking about it's not race. It's not your, this religious heritage. It's not being a Jew. It is the grace of God appropriated by faith, experienced and, and linked to our lives by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, and then he comes to this, uh, this part that we've been looking at for the last two or three weeks where he says, and you know, God is going to work out his purposes. Everything that happens, God's molding that together and he's shaping it together so that God's purpose will be accomplished. All this works together for good. If you're called of God according to his purpose, if you love God, if you've got this relationship of faith in the grace of God in Christ Jesus, God will accomplish his purpose. That's the good that all this is moving towards. And so you can just hear Paul's imaginary friend saying, well, wait a minute, what, what does that do to me? What does that do to, to my security? I, I had security uh, because I was a Jew, because I offered the sacrifices. I read the Torah. I kept the laws and, and all that. What, you know, where, where is my security now? And so Paul's going to answer that question. Uh, and in fact, he's going to ask a series of questions uh, to his uh, imaginary friend and say, well, look, let's think this through. I mean, what, what do you want to say about this? And I'm going to ask you to do the math uh, just answer these, these questions and I'll, I'll hint at what the answers are, okay? So what we're looking at here is Paul's sort of um, putting on display the security of the believer not based on religion but based on the grace of God. So that's where we are. All right, so now let's read uh, verses 31 to 39 together. Paul writes this. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who Gracious Father, already today the word has gone forth, beginning with the sunrise in the farthest east and moving across the planet until the sunset this evening. The word is being proclaimed in many languages, in many venues, in many places and circumstances, but, Father, this one word, that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Father, I'm thankful for the proclamation of your word and pray that it would be... Um, Embrace that the the power of the gospel would find a home in in lives that that hear and respond by faith. Father, I pray for the faithful proclamation of your word this morning, knowing that we are not sufficient for these things, but asking that your Holy Spirit would take human words and and convey divine truths. Father, I pray for the remainder of the day and many churches across our land and then extending over the Pacific to Asia that, Father, uh, your Word, Your Word would go forth and would be faithfully proclaimed and embraced and loved because we know that Your Word has the power. Your Word has the ability to bring people to Christ. And so, Father, honor the preaching of Your Word for Your glory. Let it have its full impact, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1922, there was an archaeologist by the name of Howard Carter. Uh, Howard Carter had gone to Egypt uh, to a place called the Valley of the Kings. It was well known to archaeologists and Egyptologists of the day. Uh, They knew that this was an area where a lot of the pharaohs and the royalty of Egypt had been buried. It was a, um, a valley that had been worked over quite extensively. In fact, uh, many experts were saying that all the tombs that could be found had been found. And uh, you're wasting your time, Howard. But uh, Howard Carter went to the Valley of the Kings thinking that he could find at least one more tomb. He, he sort of had some clues that he thought would help him track it down. And uh, so he started digging in the Valley of the Kings, and he came across a tomb, and he thought that was it. So he cabled back to England to tell his patron, the guy who was paying for this expedition, uh, Lord Carnarvon, and he said, "Uh, you need to come down here. I think we have found the tomb. And so Lord Carnarvon came down. I don't know how Howard Carter waited all that time for uh, his patron to get there, but together they went into this, this tomb and they broke down a wall and they walked into a room and it was absolutely empty. They thought, oh, no, is this another tomb it has been robbed? All the artifacts gone, all the treasures gone, and this has been a fruitless endeavor. We found what we were looking for, but for no good reason. But there was yet another wall, and they, they suspected something behind it, and so Howard Carter opened up a little aperture in the wall, and with his, his light, he stuck his head in to see what was there. And in the other room, Lord Carnarvon said, can you see anything? And Howard Carter said, yes, wonderful things. He had discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. As we look into the book of Romans again and again and again, I think to myself, I see wonderful things. I see golden treasures of the grace of God. I see the rich wealth of salvation appropriated by faith. I see the marvelous riches and majesty of God's working to save us and sending his son. I see the marvelous beauty of Christ. We see this in the book of Romans, and we look into this book, and you say, do you see anything? Yes, I see marvelous things and here's one of the treasures that has been there for us all along. And it is this, that when God saves us, when he brings us into his family, those whom God saves, he will keep by his power until the day Jesus comes. Those whom God saves, he will bring all the way to himself For eternity in heaven. In other words, those whom God has foreknown and predestined and called and justified, now glorified, those are the ones that will persevere until the end, and they will never, ever, ever, ever lose their salvation. I see the eternal security of the believer in this: that Jesus paid it all, God did it all. My response was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God not only gets all the credit and glory, he gets all the praise. He is the one who has done it all in us. And that is a wonderful thing that I see in the book of Romans. It's a wonderful thing to see because when I look and see the majesty of the grace of God and then I look in my own life, I see the horror yet abiding there of my sin. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you're way ahead of this and and doing better than I am. I'm sure you are. But on the other hand, there might be one or two here this morning that understands what I mean when I say, you know, there are sins that just keep coming up and back into our lives. Some of those sins come upon us uh, because they're just out of habit. Somehow we picked up a habit, you can call it an addiction, it might be that, drug, alcohol, whatever, but, but you know a lot of us have habits that we picked up as children, little childish survival mechanisms, and we're still using those as adults and it's sinful in the way that it, it turns out we're treating other people. You know, anger is like that. We just sort of have this automatic habitual anger response to a lot of things. If you don't believe me, just get on the highway and start driving in your car. One thing about being in the car is you get to be anonymous. It's sort of like it's a a free pass to be angry. In fact, uh, the automobile manufacturers have put the road rage button right on the steering column so that you can let others know about road rage. It's a dangerous thing. Road rage is a dangerous thing. The other day, I pulled up at an intersection and I was stopped in a long line of cars. It's where you're turning left out of a three hundred one onto off of Barry onto three hundred one. Anyway, I'm getting ready to turn left and there's another left turn lane to me. And a car comes up and it stops right beside me. There's like like ten spots in front of him, but he stops right beside me. <laughs> this is at night. And I look over and all I see is the guy looking at me. I can just barely see his eyes in the dark. Said, did I cut him off or something? You know, this, this could be road rage, he might have a gun. You know, and then I looked over there, he's still staring at me. What's he doing? I'm starting to get upset at him now. I said, you know, once he gets past me, I'm gonna blow my horn at him. <laughs> once he has to drive and then he can't shoot me. But he's just standing there, he's staring at me. I don't even wanna look over there, road rage is terrible. <laughs> and he lowers the windows. And my grandsons start yelling out the window, "Grandpa! Grandpa!" <laughs> I mean, is that sin or not? I have I have road rage in my own grandchildren. But you know we we have habits of behavior that just come out automatically, and we don't even think about them, and we just launch out. And a lot of times we snap in anger at people. Sometimes it, it's because it's habitual, and sometimes it's just because we're exhausted and we're tired. You, know, you come to the end of the day, and you're really, really tired, and somebody says something to you, and you snap and you snap at them. And, uh, and the moment you say it, you know you shouldn't have done it. You know, you shouldn't have said it. For the next three days, you're going to know you shouldn't have said it. But sometimes we're tired and we do things that we know are wrong, but we just, we just give in to the impulses in that way. Fear is what causes a lot of our sin as well. I think that's what happened to the apostle Peter, when Jesus had been arrested and he was taken inside the building, and and Peter was outside in the courtyard, and they're standing around the fire, and he's warming his hands with all these other people, and three times somebody challenges him, aren't aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? No, 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 don't don't know him. Oh, yes, you are, You're, you're Galilean, can tell by your accent, you're one of his, aren't you? No, I don't know him. You belong to Jesus, don't you? I'm telling you, I don't know him. At that very moment, it dawned on him what he had done. He had been so afraid. He had counted uh, the, the people in the courtyard. There were more of them than there was of him. And because of that fear, he had denied Jesus. And when he realized it, he went out into a darkness and he wept bitterly. Sometimes our fear gets the better of us and we fail to be what we ought to be. Sometimes we're just not paying attention. Sometimes we're just going along in life and, hey, we're just happy. And yet we're violating the commandments of God. We're harming other people. We're, we're bringing reproach upon the name of Jesus. And, we, and we're just going along and we're inattentive to it. But this, this kind of sin is in, in, is in our lives. And, and if, if you're like me, we, we look at that sin and we say, how could God put up with this It's incomprehensible that God would hang on to somebody like that. But let me tell you what the book of Romans says. It is also incomprehensible that God would ever grab on to somebody like that. It's incomprehensible that God would ever reach down to a sinner, and yet he did in Jesus Christ. And that is the glory, that's the marvelous, wonderful things that we see in the book of Romans. It's hard to understand how God would reach down to a sinners such as we are, but I want to remind you about the parable of the prodigal son. You know, we normally tell this as a salvation parable, don't we? Usually we tell it as a a parable about, uh, you know, somebody and they they went off into the far country and the father's waiting for the return of, of of the prodigal and finally he comes home and the father embraces him and brings him home. Let me remind you of something. When the son left, he was a child of the father. When the son left, home. He had been given a place already in the family. He was a son when he left, and he insulted his father. He abandoned his family. He went off into the far country. He spent all that he had gotten in riotous living. He used it all up. His friends abandoned him. He winds up feeding pigs, and he says to himself, I cannot understand how my father would ever love me again. I cannot understand how he would ever accept me again. But these pigs are eating better than I am, so I might as well go home and be a servant in my father's house. I'm no longer worthy to be a son at all. You remember this. And so he goes up, and as he's coming, the father comes at him, sees him, and, and runs to him. And the son starts his speech, says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does his dad do? He embraces him. He gives him a ring. He gives him a robe. He puts shoes on his feet. He kisses him. He says, this is my son. He was lost. He, he abandoned the family. But he has come home. He never stopped being my son. I spent every day at the gate of the house looking for him coming over the hill. And when I finally saw him, I ran to him. You see, he never lost the status of being a son in the Father's eyes. This is an amazing thing. You cannot be good enough to get into heaven. But once God has brought you in by the blood of Jesus, you can't be good enough to keep yourself in and you can't stumble hard or far enough for God to kick you out. This is the wonderful wonderful things we see in the book of Romans. We don't even need to read to today's text. We're going to, but, you know, that, that's already established. And so Paul writes to us, and, 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 and he, he, he says this. He says, what shall we say then to these things? No, what, are, what should we say to that? Now, most of us were saying, here's what I say to that. That sounds great for others. And that sounds great for the people who are pious, That sounds even great for those who who I know they're they're struggling, but for me, it doesn't sound that great because I know that my sin isn't just a little slip-up every now and then. It's over and over and over again, and it's not just the besetting sins, the sins that keep coming back and back, but it's the hidden sins. It's the ones I've got tucked away. It's the ones that you don't know about, and I'm not telling you, but God knows, and if he knows what I know, he'd never love me. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the answer is there's a lot of people against us. There's a lot of people who are against your salvation. There's a whole sort of secular educational establishment in the universities and working its way down through the education system that really doesn't want you to be a born again christian and doesn't want your children to to latch on to the gospel of Jesus Christ there are a lot of folks who in the secular world don't want you to be a Christian. Sadly, there may be people in your own family, unsaved members of your family. They don't want you to be a Christian. They don't want you talking about Jesus. They don't want you bringing up the grace of God that saves us from, of all things, sin. They don't want you talking about what Jesus has done in your life. They don't want you reminding them of the need that they might have of a Savior. There may be even unsaved members of your own family who don't want you to be a Christian. There are certainly religious people who don't don't want you to be a christian there are religious people who want you to be bound by rules and regulations and hemmed in by religious dogma there are people who want you to be stifled and 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 strangled by 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 creedalism there are legalists who want you to think that god is only interested in a checklist morality and if you fail in one thing you're out the door there are people who don't want you to be a child of grace because they're threatened by grace their power over you would be would be would, would be taken away there are people who don't want you to be saved. But let me tell you this. If God is for you, and he is, who can be against you? Who can possibly be against you? Well, some would say, well, maybe the devil's against me, and he is. The devil is a right, clever fellow. He's got all kinds of tactics to work in our lives. He, 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 He sort of works in... In, in, in ways that are, are that are subtle sometimes. Very very seldom is he overt sometimes, but usually he's pretty subtle about it. He, the, the, the devil is a great whisperer. He, he likes to whisper in the ears of Christians, you see that sin, I told you you couldn't do it. You see that sin, how could God love you? You see what you've just done, how can you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ? You know, the devil has all kinds of weapons. He's got fiery darts that he throws at us all the time. And maybe the devil can take away our salvation. But let me tell you this, the devil is a defeated tin-horned lizard. uh, Revelation chapter 12 tells us that the devil has been kicked out of heaven and he's kicked down to earth. And once he's on earth, he realized, I'll never get the better of the Father on his throne. I've been kicked out of heaven. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I think I'll start thrashing around, and I'm going to go out into the wilderness, and I'm going to find the people who adhere to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to persecute them because I can't get to God's heart direct, but I know if I can wound his people, I just might hurt the heart of God. See, that's why the devil is after you, and and if if he could pry you away from God by making you miserable, he'll make you miserable. If he can pry you away from God by making you happy, he'll make you happy because the devil doesn't care about you. He just wants to uh, harm and wound the heart of God. But he's a defeated lizard, and he's just in his death throes, and he has no power over you. And he has no ability to pry you from the Father's love. Jesus said, look, the sheep hear my voice. My sheep, they hear my voice. And when I get a hold of them, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said, you can't. Take them. No one can take you out of the hand of Jesus. And then he said this, and you know something? You're in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. It's like a two-fisted hanger-on, the Son and the Father hanging on to us, and no one and nothing can take us from the hand of God. Nothing at all. See, if God is for us, and he is, that's, that's the meaning of the Greek uh, conditional sentence there. If God is for us, and, and look, we've established that. I mean, that, that, nothing could be more certain than that God is for us from the book of Romans. Who can be against us? You know, a lot of times we use this verse when, when we're going into a meeting and we're going to have a confrontation with somebody, well, God is for me, who can be against me? You know, football teams are like, you know, God is for us, who can be against us? It's, it's much better than that. If God is for us and he has saved us by his grace in Jesus Christ, by the shed blood who could possibly be against us if God did that for us? In fact, Paul goes on to say, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave himself, or gave him up for us all. Who's the us that he's talking about? It's the us back in verse 28. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose those whom the Holy Spirit has gotten a hold of and planted in our hearts, that we have a passion for God and a love for God. We love him in a way that we would never have been able to on our own, but the Holy Spirit awakens a love in us for the, for, for the Father, and because the Holy Spirit awakens love in us for the Father, because of that, our sin is, is reproachful and, 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 and um, you know, just loathsome to us because of the Holy Spirit planting that love. So we love the Father, but those called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? His purpose is to conform us to the image of his dear Son, that we would spend eternity giving glory to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And no one and nothing can frustrate the purpose of God. And so that's what God has done for us. That's the us that we're talking about. And the ones, he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us. Look, if God, all God, if all God had done, was just give us wisdom. Let's suppose God had looked through all of heaven and he said, you know, I'll give the people wisdom. I'll write it down in a book. And they can all study the book and they can all get wisdom. And if they apply the wisdom, they'll be okay. If all God ever did was give us wisdom, that would be glory. If all God did was give us power and he said, you know, I'll give the people ability. I'll I'll give to them the wherewithal that they might be obedient and live lives that are pleasing to me. I'll give them the power. If that's all God had ever done, it would have been glorious. Oh, if God had said, I'll send the angels on their behalf. In fact, I'll, I'll give every one of them an angel. You'll have your own private angel, and this angel will watch over you, and this angel will help you. And, and when you go wrong, the angel will try to turn you back around, and, and you'll just be living in, 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 in just a, a, a constant um, uh, episode of, of um, touched by an angel. <laughs> that would have been glorious. God looked through heaven and he said, the wisdom is not enough. The power by itself is not enough. The angels by themselves are not enough. I will give them my own son. And he sent his son incarnate in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. God did not spare his own son for us. You know why he did that? You, you know. You, you do know why. Why? I mean, you've seen Tim Tebow. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son out of his deep love. Now, when did he love us? Romans tells us that Romans 5.8 says, God commendeth his love toward us. God puts his love on display for us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, while we were hostile to God, While we wanted nothing to do with God, while we rejected everything about God, he sent his son to die for us in our place that we might be redeemed. That's how much God loves you. And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how much more will he not also with him graciously give us all things <laughs> I don't know why I just thought of this you know you get to heaven there's not an angel there saying salvation no salvation for you no salvation for you No, there's the open arms of the father <laughs> I can t- I, I don't know why my mind is just going there I knew you'd make it. I knew you'd be here. Because before I created the world, I knew you'd be here. And I determined the path to get you here. And I'm the one who called you so long ago. And I'm the one who declared you not guilty. And I'm the one who's brought you to glory. (laughs) And for no other reason, we'll just spend about two or three eternities just praising the Father for that. He who would not spare Jesus, wouldn't spare his own son, gave him for us. How would he possibly withhold anything from us but bring us home to himself? Well, we read on very quickly. And who will bring any charge against God's elect? This, this is a legal term. It's a, where is there a prosecutor who will bring up a list of charges against us? Who will accuse us? You know, the devil is, a, is the accuser. He, he's the one who accuses God's people. Remind you of the story of Job. You remember this? And, and uh, up in the councils of heaven, Satan comes in and says, God, look, I can't explain this to you, so don't ask me after the service. We all got our theories, but all we know is here's what the Bible says, that, that, that Satan came into the council of God and said, Um, I've been all over the earth. I've been looking your people over, and God says, Did you notice Job? He's a righteous man, and the devil says, Of course he's righteous. Everything's working out for him. I'll tell you, you 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 pull a a few things out from under him, he's gonna collapse. God says, I don't I don't think so. Why don't you give it a try? (laughs) Now, if I'm Job and I'm reading this story, I'm thinking, God, you could have just said, I'm I'm okay, (laughs) and leave it at that, but But anyway, so so Satan attacks Job because he's accused Job. He says, Job's a phony. Job says he believes, but he doesn't really. You know, all those things you've said to yourself, do I really believe this? He says, and Job is like that. And here's what the devil did. He took away his health. He took away his family. He took away his property. He took, well, he didn't take away his friends, but he should have because the friends come in and they, they start Start in on him and say, "You know, Job, you did something here." And Job said, "No, I didn't." So he starts getting snippy with his friends. And by the end of the book, Job is being snippy with God. He's saying things like, "You know, if God would just come down here, I could explain to him why he's wrong to let this happen." It's in the Hebrew. And finally, at the end of the book, God comes and he talks to Job. And God says, "Job, I, I I know what you're going through here, but you, you you said you'd explain a few things to me. But I will tell you what, why don't you start with this? Where were you when I created the world?" And Job says in the original Hebrew, "Hubba hubba 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 hubba." <laughs> You'll never read that book the same again. But here's the thing. Satan, the great accuser, accused Job, and Job lost everything, and he, he, in, in, in the midst of his suffering, he started complaining. In fact, he got to the point where he was ready to tell God off, but you know what kept Job? The power of God. It wasn't the wisdom of Job. It certainly wasn't the insight of his friends. It wasn't Job's capacity for spirituality. It wasn't Job's stamina in order to bear all things, believe all things. It was Job the complainer and Job the one who was just, um, you know, suffering and letting everybody know he was suffering, and God kept him safe. God did that. So who is there to accuse you? Sometimes you accuse yourself, don't you? Sometimes you look at yourself and You just wonder, why would God put up with this? But let me tell you why. Because God is infinite love with infinite grace who has sent his son to bring us to an infinite residence in glory. And God gets all the glory, all the more so. And so who is there to accuse us? Who who is there to, to make that accusation? And the accusation is basically this you're guilty of something and by the way it is god who justifies that's what he says in the verse 3 god who justifies so it goes like this who's one to who say i think he's guilty it's god who said not guilty justified by faith we have peace with god there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus who can bring an accusation when god has already said not guilty And so uh, we, we read on very quickly to finish this off. But who is there? It, it is God who justifies. And who is there to condemn us? Who is there to say that we deserve to die by the way we did? Who is there to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Think about this. When Jesus died on the cross, he died Condemned. He died condemned by people, by others. He died condemned by the religion of the day. He died condemned by the superstars of the day and the celebrities of the day. I'm talking about the rulers and the, and the, and, and the people with the power. When Jesus died on the cross, he died condemned <laughs> for us. The condemnation he took upon himself was taken off of us. And when he was judged guilty by the world, that was our guilt. And he died in our place. And he suffered the death we deserved. And his blood was shed in order that we might be healed. Jesus died for us. Who's going to condemn us when Jesus has already taken that condemnation away on the cross of Jesus Christ? I mean, what is the devil going to bring up? What's the devil going to say? Look here. Look what he did. He, he's been a Christian now for 50 years, almost 60 years. He's been a Christian. And look what he did just today. I'm not going to tell you what it was, by the way. It's none of your business, and God already knows. But just, just go with me on this. But, you know, look what he did 50 years after proclaiming Christ. He did. Look what he did. Look at that sin. And is God going to say, I had no idea that was going to happen? When I let Jesus die on the cross, I left that one off the list, I can tell you that much. No, Jesus Christ died for our sins, all of our sins. And when he called us to himself, he called us that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. And we struggle and we stumble and we fall and we fail. But God's grace is greater still. So who's going to condemn us? Who's going to disqualify us from the family of God? The devil can't do it. You can't do it. And God won't do it. Who is there to to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died for our condemnation. More than that, this is sort of like Paul's writing about Jesus, you know. and, And he's saying, well, who's going to condemn us? Well, Jesus died condemned in our place. And it's sort of like Paul's mind goes, squirrel? I'll try this one on you. I was thinking about this the other day. Do squirrels stand around together and say to each other, dog? <laughs> oh, okay. But, but, but Paul's going on there, and he's talking about, about, uh, about Jesus, and he says, who, who will condemn us? Jesus is the one who died. No, 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 Jesus was the one who was raised. Not only that, he ascended into heaven. Not only that, he's at the right hand of the Father. Not only that, he is making intercession for us. And on one side, the Holy Spirit's praying for us. On the other side, Jesus is praying for us. What are they praying for? They're praying to get us through, to bring us to the glory of heaven. I want you to know, God answers the prayers of Jesus. So who's to condemn when when God has it covered? Entirely and Jesus has it covered entirely. So, what are we gonna say to these things? Are you gonna are you gonna lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Is it possible you've left your sal- lost your salvation? The answer is no. Because God is the one who justified us, God is the one who saved us, God is the one who sent Jesus for us, Jesus is the one who died for us. God has it all covered in its entirety. Now, this morning, you can have that assurance of eternal life when you come to Jesus Christ you accept him as your Lord and your Savior. When you confess your sins and say, you know, Lord, I, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I want him to be Savior and Lord of my life. And the Holy Spirit just opens your heart to, to let him in you've never been there, if you haven't done that, don't let this moment go by. Right where you are right now, ask Jesus to be Lord of your life. And the moment you do, you have eternity in heaven guaranteed. You are eternally secure. But this morning, brother and sister in Christ, you know, so often we live defeated lives because, it's like we said the other day. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you know about your own sin. The more you see the perfection of Christ, the more you see the imperfection of your own life. But understand this. God's grace is greater, and God has been working on that, and he continues to work on that. He hasn't given up on you, and you better not give up on yourself because God is doing a work, and he'll bring it to completion. He will finish what he starts. That's our eternal security. That's our boldness. That's why we keep going, not because of who we are, but because of these wonderful things, and one of them is our eternal security in the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that you designed a plan of salvation that doesn't depend on me or my wisdom, my thought, my strength, But, Father, depends solely upon your gift of Jesus Christ for me on the cross. I'm thankful, Father, that the life of the Christian believer is not dependent upon me and my figuring it out, but it's the leadership of your Holy Spirit and the working of your uh, your Holy Spirit in us. Father, I'm just so thankful that it's all yours and all you're doing. Father, help us to hang on to that. Help us to hang on to you. Father, give us the strength by the Holy Spirit to just live each day as faithfully as we can Father, when we stumble, pick us up, and when we falter, just redirect us. But in all these things, go before us, lead us, guide us, protect us. Father, get the glory in our lives. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.